and welcome back to Opinionated Science, the podcast that's brought to you by Technology Networks. My name is Lucy Lawrence and I'm the digital content producer here at Technology Networks. And this episode is actually part of our wider mini podcast series, which is focused on pursuing change in STEM. I am just so excited to be part of it because it's just a little bit different from our usual podcasts. This episode is actually the final episode of our brilliant series, which we've brought to you with SciEx and their Extraordinary Grace campaign. So this is essentially a campaign which tells the story of an ordinary girl, just like you and me, who has the potential to be extraordinary. But the interesting twist to all of this is that Grace is actually an entirely virtual scientist who was created by SciEx. To give you a little bit of background, Grace asked more than 1,300 members of the scientific community to mentor her. She was basically just looking for support and guidance inside and outside of science too. And as a result of this, new opinions as well as long suppressed challenges were uncovered as scientists from all over the globe opened up to Grace with their raw and honest experiences. From her findings, something called the change hypothesis was developed, which now addresses how best to pursue diverse perspectives in STEM and how to enable change that promotes scientific progress. Grace recently presented this incredible keynote talk that explores her findings, and we've linked it below for you to watch, and I'd recommend that you do this because it really forms the basis of the conversation that I'll be having today. Talking of which, I am delighted to be joined by Fazana Azam, who heads up the ideation at SciEx as part of the strategy and innovation team. And she's responsible for contributing to the company's long-term technology vision, strategic direction, and inorganic future growth. She also holds a master's in chemistry from the University of Kent at Canterbury and a BSc in chemistry from the University of Huddersfield, both based in the UK. I'm just really, really looking forward to you listening to this conversation. But before we head on into the podcast, as I've already mentioned, I would highly recommend listening to Grace's keynote talk. Use in the description below, as this really does form the basis of my discussion. But without further ado, I'm so excited because we're about to head on into the interview. Hi, Vazada, how are you? I am well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you. Um, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us here today. Um, this is a podcast that I have been so excited to record with you. And firstly, mainly for the benefit of the listeners rather than the viewers who might be able to see you at this point, can you introduce yourself for us? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, so my name's Frazana Azam. Um, I am uh, part of the strategy and innovation team um, at SciEx. I have a sales and marketing background. Um, and for the last five years, I've been involved in a series of diversity, equity and uh, uh, inclusion programs. Fantastic. And the first thing I would love to know is what or perhaps who influenced you to become a scientist? Of course, of course. So I think for me, you know, as a child of first generation immigrants, I was always going to choose something that, you know, any good Pakistani Indian parent wants their child to be, um, you know, a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I think I kind of grew up with that. Um, and so I always knew I was going to do something that led to um, a good job. You know, I wasn't the arts never even kind of crossed my mind. 
And um, I didn't really want to go into medicine. And so I started looking at the sciences, which I really enjoyed. And so chemistry was one that um, I loved. I got good grades in as well. Um, and I think, you know, my chemistry teacher at the time had kind of talked to me about, you know, doing a degree in chemistry meant you could navigate anywhere once you finished. You could go into medicine if I chose it. You could become, um, you know, into going to research work for pharmaceutical companies. You could even do something different like, you know, going to accounting. Um, so I think that flexibility um, really um, I found quite compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a very nice point to make because I think a lot of people, when they're starting off um, looking at where they're going to go in that kind of space, you think chemistry, I'm going to end up in a lab. That's the only place I'm going to be. So it's really nice that you had someone there to kind of be like, actually, you can take different avenues with this option. I think that's really, really cool. Um, But question number two is, what does it mean to be your authentic self and how do you navigate that within your workplace? You know, it's really interesting when I heard the term being your authentic self. I mean, I started my career over 20 years ago and I think at the time I spent my whole time trying not to be different Mm -hmm. and not to be seen as diverse. So, you know, I navigated the workplace by really observing um, the behaviors around me and kind of seeing, okay, what constitutes a success and really starting to mimic that behavior. And I, so when I heard that term, you know, what is your authentic self? It, it took me a moment to really kind of understand it. And I think, you know, where I am today is, um, it, is that it's okay to be different. You know, diversity is encouraged. Um, and I think, you know, you don't need to have your work self and your home self, but it's bringing that holistic, you know, whole self to work. And so what that actually means in my actions is, you know, bringing my whole personality, you know, sharing more of myself at work. I mean, having the strength to be vulnerable. And I think, you know, with the pandemic, um, I think it's been really important for us to be more open about our mental health. I think it brings us together. And it's interesting because I think as we talk about our individuality, it's often not. There's a lot of commonality. And sometimes it takes one brave person to say it first. But I think overall, um, the more engagement you have with your peers, with your teams, I think everyone feels more engaged and more empowered. And I think as leaders, it's really imperative upon us to start creating these environments that foster um, that psychological safety, that so teams can be open, teams, you know, our individual can be courageous, we can share our differences and celebrate them. So I think it really starts with us kind of modeling that authenticity and really showing up. Mm -hmm. And if we do a bit of a further deep dive into the topic of today's podcast, can you add your voice to the conversation of how you believe that mentoring can help drive an inclusive workforce and build equity as well? Of course, of course. I mean, we were just talking about our authentic selves. And I think what mentoring does, a a good mentor really allows you and encourages you to be your authentic self. You know, they offer that safe environment, that safe space where you can open up, you can be vulnerable, you can ask for advice, you know, really communicate some of your concerns and fears and ask how you can improve. 
Um, and I think you can also get a different perspective. You know, they can challenge your ideas, um, but really, ultimately, they always have your back. They're your champion. And I've been mentoring for over five years. And, and, and I actually started when I was looking for a mentor, but I couldn't find one. Oh, nice. And I remember being disappointed, you know, and then looking around and going, how many people feel like me? So why don't I start mentoring? And, you know, the feedback I get from my uh, mentees has been that, you know, having someone in their corner who's really focused on helping them to achieve their goals, that made them believe in themselves mm -hmm. and helped them become more empowered. Um, and, you know, they felt they could take on bigger challenges. And I think, you know, that's how I think having, you know, building those empowered individuals and teams that believe in themselves, that's really what starts to contribute um, towards a more inclusive organization. And that's what starts to drive us towards a more equitable experience for everyone. You know, the other model that works really well for DEI is reverse mentoring. So that way you flip that kind of senior mentor, junior mentee model. And the way it works is, you know, you have a more junior level person communicating, you know, diverse perspectives to uh, perhaps senior leadership, for example. And, you know, I've spoken to senior leaderships, uh, senior leaders who have gone through this and spoken about how much they've learned from these relationships. And, and to be honest, how much it's fundamentally and profoundly changed the way they think and, and the way they connect with their teams. And I think those learnings benefit us all, you know, as they become more informed, they become better leaders. Mm -hmm. I really like the idea that actually relationships like that work both ways, whereas actually when you go into mentoring, you think it's perhaps going to be a bit of a one-way street, but actually two people get something out of the journey and actually beyond that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a two-way learning. Mm -hmm. And I think as a mentor, um, you learn so much. You're so kind of so much of a rewarding experience going through that. Mm -hmm. And then, so as many organisations or communities are embarking on transformative DEI journeys, what advice or suggestions would you give scientific communities and leaders to ultimately grow this culture of opportunity? Do you know, I think DEI is a journey. Um, there's no real magic bullet. I think you really, to be successful, um, you need a multi-pronged approach. And I think, you know, if you're developing a strategy, you think about it as you would any business strategy, you know, having clearly defined goals, having a very good idea of what success looks like, you know, getting stakeholder buy-in and, and really building actions. I think leadership buy-in is really important for any DEI strategy. And I think, you know, there's so much research and data out there that talks about how, you know, DEI improves company performance, productivity, innovation. So you can use that to sell the message. And I think having your president or CEO or VP level talking about the importance of what you're doing and why you're doing it is critical. It gets and everyone on board. Absolutely. Just to have everyone on board. And then it's really important for having them to walk the talk. So it's not just lip service. Mm -hmm. And so as you build these strategies, they need to be resourced, you know, budget assigned um, and people dedicated to it. You know, sometimes DEI initiatives are volunteer service 
But for it to be meaningful, you need a dedicated team. And, and you can pull together cross-functional teams from different departments and assign a percentage of their time. That's an easy way um, to start to build teams. And, you know, any good, any good strategy, you need accountability. So could you even link it to an annual performance goal or even a bonus payment? Now that becomes a bold move. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to start to build meaningful strategies. And then I think, you know, as you kind of start to think about these, um, you know, DEI strategy, it's such a, a broad statement. So you really need to think about, you know, within your organization, what challenges do you have? You know, if we think about the employee life cycle, is the goal that we want to attract or bring more diversity into the organization? So now we have to dig deeper um, into our hiring processes. Or is the the goal about development opportunities for diverse diverse, um, employees? Do we want more diversity, middle or senior management? So now we need to start thinking about, do we bring more coaching or mentoring? Or do we develop, um, do we have development projects to showcase diverse talent? Or is it, you know, or is it a retention program that we need to address? So I think having a clear idea of the challenges your organization is facing and then building those targeted, meaningful solutions is going to have that that positive impact um, to your organization. And and that's really the top-down approach. The other approach, I think, when you think about DEI is kind of that bottom-up, employee-driven. And, you know, we've seen employee groups, you know, people come together because we're women or we're Black or Latin, um, LGBTQ+, and you come together and it's about sharing our voice and sharing our stories, like-minded people, and we start to build that community. And as you build that, and if you can build consensus, you can start to communicate what you need as that community um, to leadership. And, you know, at SciEx and our uh, parent company, Danaher, we have a lot of um, employee resource groups. Um, and it's always the women and friends. So we always have that allyship that's really important to us. And these have grown and these groups have resources and budgets. So they offer coaching. So we have an external company that comes in and coaches individuals. We can apply for courses that help us to build our personal brand um, or even advisors and career development. So they can be really, really powerful. And then my final comment is, as we think about kind of building DEI into our organizations, we really need to start thinking about unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. And I think every single person has biases. You know, the word I actually like is unexamined bias. So it's not whether or not you have bias. It's really about, are you willing to invest the time um, to examine that? You know, we need to educate ourselves. And there's so many resources out there. LinkedIn has some really good courses. But are we willing to educate ourselves, identify the biases that we have, and then how do we actively work against those defaults? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always remember being taught to follow your gut instinct, you know, follow your gut. But, you know, following your gut may lead to unconscious or even conscious bias. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do we thoughtfully and purposefully really kind of work to address that? That is 
an incredible answer, you know. <laughs> and what I'm now really wondering is what would you say that the role of allyship is in creating an inclusive culture in an organisation or even an academic institution? Yeah, I think allyship is incredibly important. I mean, I spoke about our employee resource groups. Each one of them is and friends, Mm -hmm. which talks to the importance of allies. And allies are people who actively, you know, support or defend the rights and well-being of another um, person or a group of individuals. And they actively collaborate and fight and really promote equality. And I think as leaders, it's really important for us to start that journey by actively listening and really understanding people's perspectives and having empathy and really getting creative in how do we how do we move the needle Mm -hmm. well you know and it's interesting because I think at a higher level there's a lot we can do but I was actually listening to some of our senior leaders uh, in a presentation talking about allyship Um, and they said something that I found really compelling that we can all do so I, I don't know about you Lucy but I've been in so many meetings where someone's spoken over me or I've been interrupted um or I've said something and it goes unheard and then a male colleague says it five minutes later and it's suddenly a great idea suddenly it's a shock (laughs) well wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an ally in that meeting who could say hey Lucy you're interrupted but I think you were talking about xyz could you finish that incredible hey Lucy didn't you say that 10 minutes ago were you referring to the same thing absolutely but that's something that each one of us can do and I mean I shamelessly stole that idea but I think it's so powerful and it's something, you know, we can easily all be that ally. Absolutely. And I love that because it could be someone within your team or you could just be in a meeting with people that you don't know, but you've heard someone say that and no one else seems to have kind of listened. So I love that it can be anyone that can be that ally. That's an incredible piece of advice what would you say is actually the most difficult part of implementing a DEI program though you know it's it's probably easier than it's ever been you know 20 years ago had I thought we would be talking so extensively uh, about DEI I don't think I would have believed it Mm -hmm. Um, so I think you know when people start their DEI journey it's often you start with the diversity we celebrate diversity so we celebrate different cultural religious events we have potlucks and try different foods and it's fantastic and we should all embrace that getting to the inclusion and equity that's the difficult you know that's where it takes more education more effort and much more of a targeted and purposeful approach, you know, getting leadership buy-in, I spoke about earlier, is really important. Um, and I think once you start to build those programs, um, DEI is a journey. You know, there's often no quick wins, you know. It's, it's sometimes difficult to have a clear ROI or metric. So we have to get creative, really to start measuring success. I mean, ultimately, how do you measure culture change? You know, there's ways to look at it, engagement surveys, satisfaction surveys, but there's no kind of direct line. So I think kind of practicing patience, which is very difficult for me. <laughs> um, I, I think it's difficult, you know, and, and it's balancing that practicing patient with at times pushing um, really hard 
and that constant selling and those constant conversations. So, you know, it's a journey, it's a team sport, um, but it's also so much rewarding. And from that, I know that our audience listening will have a specific question in mind that I just have to ask you, but what advice do you have for those people listening who really, really want to be DNI advocates, but just aren't sure how to start? Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, of course. I think, you know, some of the easiest ways is perhaps to join a group. So whether that's an employee driven group as an ally um, or even an external group. I mean, there's a lot of women driven STEM groups in our local organizations. Um, things like ASMS have the Black Coalition of Mass Spectrometrists that you can join. There's things like FEMS, the females in mass spec. So there's a lot of these groups out there. So, you know, you have to do the research. Um, And I think joining one of these uh, groups can be incredibly rewarding. It can be incredibly educational. Um, And I think the other way is really just start talking to your colleagues and friends and start having those conversations. And, you know, I've worked in, in, in DEI for a few years. And I've seen people who maybe didn't grow up with a lot of diversity in their neighborhood or their schools or their family or friend circle. And I think there's nervousness, you know, they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to get it wrong. You know, do I say black? Do I say African-American? Do I say Asian? Do I say South Asian? Can I say brown? You know, uh, what's right? What's wrong? And I'd say, I'd really encourage you to start having those conversations. And if you trip over and you get it wrong, but your intent is to learn, it's okay. And for diverse people like me, if someone does trip or if they do say something that is inappropriate, let's show grace and let's really educate them and, you know, kindly. And, you know, and if it's wrong, it's wrong, you know, but let's kind of spend time teaching them so that they become our allies. I love that as well. (laughs) And from that, do you actually have any tips on more creative ways that you could proactively source candidates from underrepresented communities? Yeah, we've been looking at this, looking at the hiring process. And I'd say, you know, the first thing I, I would encourage you is really to start having an awareness of where you're recruiting. So oftentimes what happens is um, where, you know, these roles are office based and we start to recruit in the local region and then we yeah. start to kind of increase. Um, I'd really encourage you to look at the uh, demographics by race. So if the local or regional demographic is, for instance, 70% white, and there's only, you know, five or 6% black or Asian, you're not going to get a good mix of candidates. But you really have to get creative and start looking at where are you doing outreach? You know, are there geographies where there's a higher population of black or Asian people or Latinx? Um, And can you do outreach there? And budgeting early on for relocation um, becomes really important. And I think the other thing is, you know, does the job have to be office-based? Could it be remote-based? I think the pandemic has taught us that we can work remotely and we can be very productive. So I think getting more creative how you do outreach is one way. The second way is build partnerships. 
So, you know, I spoke about the FEMS and uh, different groups at ASMS and groups like MENA, which is Middle Eastern North African women coming together. So partner, educate yourself and collaborate to build these much more targeted um, and purposeful campaigns. So I think that's kind of the outward approach. And as you're doing that, I think it's also important to look inward into your organization and, you know, look at your hiring process. You know, let's make sure that as we create job descriptions, for instance, you know, are they inclusive? We often start writing, you need 10 years experience. Do you really need 10 years? Maybe five is okay, you know? And then as you start to go through the interview process, let's make sure that our interview panelists reflect that diverse talent that's coming in because they're evaluating the organization as well. Making sure that the interview questions and the debrief process is free from bias, you know? You could even assign someone to actually monitor the bias. So, you know, again, it takes effort, it takes time and a very targeted approach uh, to be successful. But ultimately, very much worth it. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So sadly, we're actually coming to the end of the podcast, but to round things off, I'm actually going to invite you to play a bit of a game where I start the sentence and you have to finish it. The first sentence I have for you is, I love science because... I love science because it makes my life so much easier in so many ways. Science is innovation. You know, science allows me to jump on a plane and explore the world. iPhones communicate. Medicines make me better. It's all encompassing. I absolutely love that. And my second one and the last one I have for you is the future of science should be. I think the future of science is for everyone to own. I think it's diverse, it's inclusive, it's equitable, and I think it's going to lead innovation in every facet of life. That was an incredible answer. (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and joining the conversation that is really changing the future of science it has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much i really appreciate the opportunity and i've really enjoyed this experience so thank you so much Well, what a lovely way to end this mini-series, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thanks once again to SciEx and the incredible opportunity to speak with the thought leaders in this field. But remember that although you've come to the end of this episode, it doesn't mean you can't go back and listen to the other episodes that you've missed. They're all still available. I know that you'll love them, so I've left a link below for you to recap on them. I'll see you over there.